Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4. We ended 1 Samuel chapter 2 by going over the prophetic judgment against Eli and his family that had come from the mouth of an unnamed prophet. And to summarize, God's oracle through that prophet was that Eli's descendants, who were by custom destined to be the next high priest and senior level regular priest of Israel, they would serve for only a short time because they would all die young. And in addition, God cursed Eli's two sons, Hophni and uh, Pincus, such that they would both die on the same day and that Eli would live long enough to experience that tragic event. Further, at some point in the near future, Eli's priestly line of succession would be usurped by another priestly line that was established by the Lord and that other priestly line would produce this faithful priest that we read about as opposed to the growing list of unfaithful high priests which included Eli and that they would honorably serve both God and his anointed king and in light of history that faithful priest was probably Sadok and of course the anointed king was David but God also made a made Eli a promise that the original priestly family, meaning the overall clan of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi, of which Eli was a sub-clan, that they would not be cut off from God's original promise that was made to them back in Egypt. Indeed, a descendant of Aaron would be that faithful high priest, and then others from Aaron's line would continue to be high priests and common priests, even if that also meant that Eli's particular family would more or less be excluded from participating. Now, so that we're clear, Eli was not the only family line that came from Aaron. There were others. But in the larger sense, there remained now at the time of 1 Samuel but two primary clans representing Aaron. And that was the clan of Eleazar and the clan of Ithamar. Now Aaron had a number of sons. And from each of them sprang a clan. But two of those sons, Nadav and Abihu, were killed by God out in the wilderness for being so casual and disrespectful about God's ritual protocols. And so their family bloodlines terminated. Now, Eleazar, the eldest remaining son of Aaron, thus was given the honor of representing the line of high priests that, that would carry on after Aaron's death. Another son of Aaron, his youngest, Ithamar, would represent the line of common priests who were in charge of the Levite blue-collar workers who labored to maintain the tabernacle and later the temple. Eli was a descendant of Ithamar. So it's 
puzzling as to how he wound up becoming the high priest. And there's a hole in the historical records that if we could find it, would probably explain how it was that a descendant of Eleazar didn't assume that role instead of Eli. In any case, Sadok would eventually become a high priest for King David, and Sadok was of the proper lineage for a high priest, the line of Eleazar. So, as we open chapter 3, the Nazarite child Samuel was still serving God at the tabernacle in Shiloh under, under the direction of the aging high priest Eli, who was now under condemnation from Yehovah, and he was simply waiting for that shoe to fall. All right, so let's read 1 Samuel chapter 3. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3, page 301 in your complete Jewish Bible. The child Shmuel continued ministering to Adonai under Eli's direction. Now in those days, Adonai rarely spoke, his visions were few. Once during that period, Eli had gone to bed, his eyes had begun to grow dim, so that it was hard for him to see. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Shmuel had lain down to sleep in the sanctuary of Adonai, where the ark of God was. Adonai called Shmuel, and he answered, Here I am. Then he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. And Adonai called a second time, Shmuel. And Shmuel got up and he went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. And he answered, I didn't call my son. Lie down again. Now, Shmuel didn't yet know Adonai. The word of Adonai hadn't been revealed to him. Adonai called Shmuel again a third time. And he got up and went to Eli and he said, Here I am. You called me. At last Eli realized it was Adonai calling the child. So Eli said to Shmuel, Go and lie down and if you're called again, say, Speak Adonai, your servant is listening. Shmuel went and lay down in his place. Adonai came and stood and then spoke as at other times. Shmuel! Shmuel! And then Shmuel said, Speak, your servant is listening. And Adonai said to Shmuel, Look, I'm going to do something in Israel that will make both ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. On that day, I will do against Eli everything I have said with regard to his family from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will not execute judgment against his family forever because of his wickedness in not rebuking his sons even though he knew that they brought a curse on themselves. Therefore I have sworn to the family of Eli that the wickedness of Eli's family will never be atoned for by any sacrifice or offering. Shmuel lay there until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of Adonai, but Shmuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Shmuel. Shmuel, my son, he answered. Here I am, Eli. Eli said, what did he say to you? Please don't hide it from me. May God do whatever he said and worse if you hide from me anything he said to you. So Shmuel told him every word and hid nothing. And Eli replied, 
It is Adonai. Let him do what seems good to him. Shmuel kept growing and Adonai was with him and he let none of his words fall to the ground. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba became aware that Shmuel had been confirmed as a prophet of Adonai. Adonai continued appearing in Shiloh for Adonai revealed himself to Shmuel in Shiloh by the word of Adonai. Some time had passed since God's curse was pronounced upon Eli and his family. Now how much time we don't know, but probably a year or two since Samuel was still a child. Now you know we need to be careful not to mischaracterize Eli as some thoroughly wicked man and thus worthy of destruction. He was not, and God didn't destroy him. Rather, Eli was a decent man who loved the Lord, but he was a weak man. Not strong enough for the challenging and critical role as Israel's high priest. A role which he somehow acquired, but probably ought not have had. Because he wasn't of God's ordained and authorized family line of high priests. Eli's lack of fortitude led to his sons running rampant over God's people, even desecrating the sanctuary. And further, his weakness didn't allow Eli sufficient backbone to stand up and do what was right according to God's will and his Torah, especially in the face of what was very likely stiff opposition and a very ambivalent Israelite population. Undoubtedly, Eli inherited, he hadn't created a dysfunctional priesthood along with 12 dysfunctional tribes to oversee. But there is also no evidence that he he did any more than to passively man his post and enjoy the honors and privileges of his lofty office and abide by the many questionable man-made traditions that developed and now existed and operated in place of God's authorized sacrificial rituals and worship protocols. You know, there's a lesson here for all who would aspire to be a leader of God's people. First, you better be called and you better be equipped by Jehovah for the job. Because, second, if you accept a leadership role at whatever level, whether you're called or not, you will be held responsible by God for what transpires on your watch. Obviously, no leader can know everything that goes on. Can't control every detail. But a leader is to be diligent, vigilant, and he's to obey the Lord and do what may be difficult versus what's popular or even usual. Eli took over a mess. But rather than endeavor to clean it up, He preferred to leave it a mess. That made it his fault. Now he owned it. And he owned all the repercussions that came with it, as he sadly discovered. Verse 1 informs us that this was an era when God didn't speak to his people very much. 
He didn't show up in visions, a somewhat usual way for the Lord to communicate, particularly in ancient times. Why? Well, because this was a dark time in Israel. The people had fallen far away from Jehovah, and they weren't prone to paying any attention to him. So when that happened, the Lord withheld his instructions and his responses to their requests. Word to the wise. No different now in our day. Thus, this first verse of chapter 3 sets the scene for what comes next by essentially explaining that because God's communication with Israel had become so rare that it would be a pretty major surprise if he just suddenly broke his silence and spoke. Well, one day, Eli had gone to bed as usual expecting nothing more than a good night's sleep. You know, now Eli was sufficiently advanced in age that he was nearly blind. And then late into the night, apparently sometime before dawn, something extraordinary happened. We know it was still nighttime because the sanctuary menorah was still burning. The golden lampstand had enough oil in it to burn till morning, at which point the few would run out and the flames extinguish. Now verse 3 says that Samuel was sleeping in the sanctuary, the location of the ark. What it actually says in Hebrew is that he was sleeping in the Hekal, not far from the ark. Um, some scholars think that that meant that Samuel was actually sleeping in the front compartment of the tent, sanctuary, the front compartment, um, that was typically called the holy place, the room where the menorah, the table of showbread, and the incense altar resided. Now, why? think that's highly unlikely. I suppose it's possible, especially considering the rather lax priestly protocols during this era. But it's far more likely that little Shmuel was sleeping in one of the many chambers that had been erected in and around what amounted to a courtyard area of the tabernacle. Now, what throws scholars and certainly call, uh, and causes uncertainty is the use of the word hekal, H-E-K-A-L, hekal, in this sentence. See, hekal was a rather standard word that just meant large dwelling. And so it was used to refer also to a temple, any God's temple. All right? And it seems probable that hekal at this time more indicated the general grounds of a God's dwelling place. Thus, it's just like when we speak about the wilderness tabernacle, that in, in, in common terms at least, it not only means the sacred tent itself, but, but everything out to the courtyard screen that surrounded it. Kind of the whole deal. Now, interestingly, we see that scripturally speaking, the term tabernacle isn't being used much anymore at this point. And instead, it is often being replaced by the word hekal. And at the same time, we also will read of rooms and doors and antechambers that lead into the sanctuary. Remember, the original wilderness tabernacle had no attached rooms and certainly had no doors. I mean, just heavy curtains. But you know what we have to remember is 
that a cloth and animal skin tent is a rather temporary arrangement. Okay? Something approaching four centuries have passed now all right, since that heavily used tent was first constructed at the base of Mount Sinai. There had undoubtedly been countless repairs and patches applied to it. But since the day Israel crossed the Jordan into Canaan, the tabernacle no longer needed to be portable. Okay. Shiloh was considered its permanent home. And the tent material, the wooden skeleton, would have long ago weakened and worn out. So most archaeologists and Jewish sages say that the priests and the Levites would have used more permanent construction techniques to repair and replace as needed. And because of the permanent location now of the sanctuary at Shiloh and the reality that people didn't camp around it in tents anymore, but they lived dispersed in brick and stone dwellings throughout their own tribal territories, the Levites and priests who served their duty in what they call courses, um, they needed facilities to sleep and to eat during their stay at Shiloh. Generally speaking, only Eli and his family lived at Shiloh. For the most part, the other priests and Levites would just come for a temporary stay when it was their turn to serve at the sanctuary. Therefore, quarters were constructed using standard construction materials of the day. And the wilderness tabernacle gave way to kind of a hodgepodge of brick and wood and probably animal skin structures. And and really that's how we need to picture what was there at this point. In any case, the point of the narrator saying that Samuel was near the ark served an important purpose in this story. And we'll see now... uh, that that's the case because sometime during the night Samuel is awoken when he distinctly hears a voice call his name. And we of course are going to soon find out that that voice belongs to none other than the God of Israel. But we also know that when the Lord is present in his earthly dwelling place he hovers above the ark. He hovers above the mercy seat and uses it as his figurative footstool. So it was important for the storyteller to tell us that Samuel was near enough to that ark where God was to make it plausible that Samuel could hear him calling. Now Samuel thinks it's the blind and frail Eli calling to him for assistance, logical enough, and so answers back, here I am. Then he ran to Ellie's bedside, and Ellie said he didn't call him, so go back to bed. No sooner had Samuel crawled back under the covers than it happens again. So sure is Samuel that it must be Ellie calling that he runs again to Ellie's chamber. And Ellie again informs him he didn't call him. Now, any Hebrew reader of a couple thousand years ago and more by now would have been asking themselves why Samuel didn't immediately know that it was God calling. 
after all, the voice must have been quite different and distinct from that of the aged Elise. So verse 7 tells us that Samuel didn't get it. That it was Yehovah calling him because he didn't yet know the Lord. And he didn't because the word of the Lord hadn't been revealed to him yet. Let me put that another way. The special relationship between Adonai and Samuel, much like believers have with God, hadn't formed yet. Partly because Samuel was much too young to understand such lofty spiritual matters. And also partly because Eli apparently hadn't done much to teach him. Now as logical and easy as it is for for us to understand that, I think there's something else present here that we ought not miss. Samuel was doing regular daily service before the Lord in the Lord's sanctuary, but at the same time, he didn't know the Lord. Nor did he know the word of the Lord. What this tells us is that anyone with the aptitude and a decision can perform repetitive religious services in a house of God. Now that doesn't mean that they have any sort of knowledge of or intimate relationship with him. We see this sort of thing regularly at all levels within institutional Christianity. Sometimes it's with Sunday school teachers or deacons or elders who it turns out have served in some capacity for years but weren't even saved. Or or had nothing but the most minimal understanding of God's word. But one particularly troubling example is that hundreds of pastors and ordained ministers leave their positions every year and go back to the secular world. Very sad. Some because they're just burned out. Others because they couldn't make enough money to support their families. But at least as many because they came to the conclusion that they had never really believed. They never had faith in the first place and it was all just a big mistake. Yet some of these have served as our church leaders for years and years. Performing baptisms, leading worship and prayer, teaching our children and acting as the spiritual authority over a totally unsuspecting flock. Just because someone does service in the name of the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that person has a personal relationship with God. Samuel was young. He hadn't yet reached an age of accountability. Eli seems to have been somewhat derelict and teaching Samuel anything about spiritual matters except for traditions and customs and rituals. Samuel knew that God existed, but he didn't know God. 
and he didn't know his laws and his commands. But that was about to change. So Samuel, Samuel obediently snuggled back into his bed. The voice calls his name a third time. And Samuel runs again right back to Eli. Because the Lord's presence had become so rare in that era. It took this long for the high priest Eli to even to begin to suspect that something supernatural was going on here. But suspected he finally did. And so he instructed little Shmuel to go back to his chamber and if he heard that voice again, say, speak, Yehovah, your servant is listening. And it's important to notice that the Lord called to Samuel three times. And when something happens in threes in the Bible... It often means that there is important spiritual significance to it. In reality, it was also pretty common in most Middle Eastern cultures that a threefold repetition involved magic. It was probably that triple repetition that made Ellie think more seriously about this matter. But then the Lord calls Samuel a fourth time. And the boy responds as instructed by Eli. Well, Yehovah proceeds to explain that he's about to make some serious changes in Israel. Something so significant that everybody's going to pay attention. And the change is that on one day, a lot is going to happen. And it's going to revolve around the promise of punishment that he has ordained against Eli and his family. You know, one wonders just how much of what the Lord was saying that this young boy was even able to assimilate. The Lord was confiding in Shmuel what he was going to do to Eli and why. And the why was that Eli's family had turned to wickedness and for that there was no possibility of atonement. Eli's personal wickedness was primarily that he didn't rebuke his incorrigible sons, Hophni and Pincus, for their despicable behavior. Preparation was underway to make Samuel the Lord's official earthly messenger and for Samuel to be a judge over Israel. He'd have to grow up fast now. He had learned of the Lord's intent to severely harm Eli and his family. It must have frightened that little kid. Especially since the whole thing was so open-ended. I mean, how the punishment would happen. When would it happen. How Samuel might be affected by it all. All that was left unanswered. It seems that the first thing that the boy who didn't know God learned was that God will punish wickedness even among his own people and especially among those set apart to serve him. I would imagine that this event had much to do with shaping Samuel's life and his determination to be faithful to God at all costs. Well, let's take a moment 
to revisit this statement by the Lord that the wickedness of Ali's family will never be atoned for by any sacrifice or offering. You know, way back when we studied the law in the Torah, it was made clear that not every sin a man might commit could be atoned for by an animal sacrifice. The two central principles to animal sacrifice were that first, only the shedding of blood, the loss of life, could expiate sins, and two, that in His grace, God would provide that the blood of an innocent animal could be used as a substitute for the human who deserved to have his or her own blood shed in payment for sin. But Yehovah deemed that certain sins were beyond the scope of the sacrificial system. Listen to Numbers 15.30. But an individual who does something wrong intentionally, whether a citizen or a foreigner, is blaspheming Adonai. That person will be cut off from his people because he has had contempt for the word of Adonai and has disobeyed his command. That person will be cut off completely. His offense will remain with him. The Revised Standard Version says it a little more literally than the complete Jewish Bible that I just read it from. There it says... But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now a high-handed sin is often translated as an intentional sin. At other times it's translated as blasphemy. Now you need to go back to earlier Torah lessons to get a a fuller understanding of this concept. But, intentional doesn't necessarily mean quite what it sounds like. Obviously, if somebody steals something, it was intentional. And we know that stealing is a sin for which there is atonement available. Rather, it's better to translate this as high-handed or extremely serious, something like that. Because the idea is that not only are there lesser and greater sins, but also there comes a point that the sin is so offensive to the Lord that His justice system can't allow the blood of an animal as a substitute. And so the trespasser will pay the price with the loss of his physical life and or eternal life. Now, by definition, then, blasphemy against the Lord falls outside of any divine system of atonement. So maybe this is a good time to revisit just what blaspheming means. Practically all Christians are told that the only unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right? But practically all Christians also have no good idea what that means. Mark 3.29 However, someone who blasphemes against the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness. 
He's guilty of an eternal sin. See, this is why it's so critical to not render the Old Testament as dead and gone and nailed to the cross. It's in the Old Testament that we find out what blaspheming the Holy Spirit means. And it means to commit a sin of such grievous nature and to do it with utter disregard for the Spirit of God who lives within us that no forgiveness is available. Further, embedded in the concept of blasphemy against God is the sinner's lack of repentance. In other words... Like Hophni and Pincus who stole the Lord's sacrifices knowing they were sinning directly against God. And even when confronted with this sin by their father Eli, they expressed no remorse, had no intent to repent. Blasphemy is a combination of a great sin directly against God plus no repentance by the violator. Now, I've heard the argument that Mark 3.29 is actually just a hypothetical statement. It's not even possible among believers. But to accept that explanation completely neuters God's word. And it makes Mark 3.29 some kind of fairy tale or toothless threat. But let's look at the verse just preceding Mark 3.29. Mark 3.28 where it says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. Again, once we have a good understanding of Torah, we can grasp what is meant by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. All throughout the Torah, catch this, all throughout the Torah there are two primary kinds of statutes. Those concerning men sinning against other men, And those concerning men sinning directly against God. What the Gospel of Mark tells us is that Yeshua's atonement has the efficacy to forgive us for anything one man can do against another man. Even murder. However, things that are blasphemous, high-handed sins, the worst of the worst of a man directly against God, are at times not covered by Yeshua's blood. And especially those times, and I can't tell you if there's others or not, are when there is utterly no repentance for it. Even when confronted by the truth. Further, We see that because these high-handed sins are so terrible, and that Yehovah might have accepted Yeshua's blood as payment if the violator had expressed true regret and changed his ways, instead we'll find that there are times when the Lord will harden a person's heart so that they don't repent. High-handed sin without repentance equals eternal death. Now you can debate among yourselves whether any believer is even capable of doing such a thing. But the pattern we see set down in the Old Testament is that not only is a believer and the God of Israel, Israel capable of blasphemy, but my goodness, so are even the priests of the God of Israel. 
Hophni and Pincus have just been declared as guilty of blasphemy against God. He has hardened their hearts so that they won't repent. Thus, they're not eligible for atonement. And we see precisely that same thing in the New Testament. So you decide for yourself whether a believer is utterly immune to direct blasphemy from, against God. In verse 15, we find Samuel lying there wide-eyed after his encounter with the Lord until the sun rose. And it was time to perform his first daily duty, which was to open the doors into the sanctuary. This indeed means the door into the holy place. And it was undoubtedly a wooden door and not a curtain or a veil like it used to be. Okay. Opening the door was so the priests could, who were on duty at that time right, could enter and service the menorah and perform whatever priestly duties were customary inside that sanctuary chamber. Of course, this meant that Samuel would encounter Eli. What would he tell Eli about everything that went on? Would he divulge to Eli what Jehovah had revealed to him? Samuel was afraid to say to Eli the awful things that was going to happen to Eli's family. Now notice that it says that Samuel got this information in a vision, a mara in Hebrew. This connects back to verse 10 where it says the Lord stood before Samuel. So these two statements connect again back even further to verse 1 when we're told that God's word was rare and visions were few in Israel in that day. Well, things have changed. Samuel has now received God's word and he's experienced a vision. And a new era was dawning. And Samuel was about to behave as a prophet for the first time and tell Eli about God's oracle to him. Eli insisted that Samuel tell him everything the Lord told him during the night and the shivering boy complied by repeating to Eli every devastating word he heard but a couple of hours earlier. Eli responds in quiet resignation by saying, It is Jehovah. Let him do what seems good to him. This was no childhood nightmare Shmuel had suffered. It indeed was the Lord and the message was clear. Eli's family's fate was sealed. There was no hope now for reversal. Verse 19 explains that Samuel kept growing and the inference includes natural physical maturing but less so then it means that Samuel's gift as a prophet was also starting to develop. Okay. In other words, the boy who did not know God now knew God intimately and was maturing spiritually as his body was growing. Okay. Thus, every word that the Lord gave to Samuel, he passed along faithfully. And so in time, all Israel from Dan down to Beersheba knew about Samuel and his prophetic accuracy. They grew to trust Samuel. 
further we see another very important development. For the past three centuries or so, Israel had no common national leader that all the twelve tribes looked to. In the era of the judges, they looked to their own tribal leaders and the occasional shofet, occasional judge, who God at times raised up to deliver one tribe or another from trouble or oppression. That Israel would begin to accept a nationwide leader in Samuel was paving the way for them to accept eventually a national king. Let's get part way into chapter 4. But we're going to read it all. There's going to, just a couple minutes afterwards we'll talk about it. So the word of Shmuel came to all Israel. Israel went out to fight against the Philistine, the Philistines, setting up camp at Evan Azer, while the Philistines camped at Afech. The Philistines drew up in battle formation against Israel, and the battle was fierce. Israel was beaten by the Philistines, and they killed about 4,000 soldiers on the battlefield. When the army had returned to camp, the leaders of Israel asked, Why has Adonai defeated us today before the Philistines? Let's bring the ark for the covenant of Adonai from Shiloh to us so that he will come among us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai Savot, who was present above the cherubim. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Pincus, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark for the Covenant of Adonai entered the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout that resounded throughout the land. And on hearing the shout, the Philistines asked, what does this great shout in the Hebrews camp mean? Then they realized that the ark of Adonai had arrived in the camp and the Philistines became afraid. They said, God has entered the camp. We're lost. There was no such thing yesterday or the day before. We're lost. Who will rescue us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods that completely overthrew the Egyptians in the desert. Well, be strong. Behave like men, you Philistines, so that you won't become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Behave like men. Fight. The Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent. It was a terrible slaughter. 30,000 of Israel's foot soldiers fell. Moreover, Moreover, the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Pincus died. One of the soldiers, a man from Benjamin, ran, and he came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and, his, and earth on his head. And as he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching because he was trembling with anxiety over the ark of God. And when the man entered the city and told the news, the whole city began crying out. And on hearing the cries, Eli asked, What does this uproar mean? So the man hurried, and he came to Eli and told him, Eli was 98 years old, and his gaze was fixed because he was blind. The man said to Eli, I'm the soldier that came. I, I escaped today from the battlefield. And he asked, How did things go, my son? And the one who had come with the news answered, Israel fled before the Philistines. There was a terrible slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Pincus, are also dead, and the ark of God was captured. 
As soon as he mentioned what had happened to the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off of his seat next to the gate, broke his neck, and died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, Pincus' wife, was pregnant in near delivery time. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into abnormal labor, bent over and gave birth. And as she was dying, the women standing by her said to her, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she didn't answer or show any sign of recognition. She named the child Echovod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and husband and she said the glory of Israel had gone into exile because the ark of God has been captured the first words of chapter 4 connect us back to chapter 3 and it confirms that Samuel was a prophet now for all Israel not just for one or two tribes which had been the norm up till now we see that the dreaded Philistines were still the primary foes of Israel and that the battle for the Holy Land had by no means been settled. What we just read is one of the most infamous stories in the Bible, the story of the Ark of God being lost into the hands of Israel's worst enemy. As a context, note that Samuel was not the military leader leading Israel into battle against the Philistines. In fact, who functioned as the field general was apparently irrelevant to the story because it was left out. We might expect that by this point Samuel would be established as a political leader of Israel as there seemed to be no one else with his stature. But instead we're focused now to the priesthood. And to our surprise, Eli was still the judge and high priest of Israel and so he would have been the official who gave the stamp of approval for Israel to wage war. Now normally, as high priest, he would have been present at the battle site, though stationed at a safe distance. But instead, we find his two sons, Hophni and Pincus, involved. Eli was blind and infirm, and now was strictly a figurehead of a high priest. Even so, there's no doubt that Samuel's word played a role in Eli's determination to have this battle. There seems to be no reluctance on Eli's part or even his son's part to accept, accept Samuel's position as a prophet of God. Interestingly, although we're not told what God oracle to Samuel was that might have precipitated this battle, we can see from what preceded that sometimes God's directions to us don't wind up accomplishing what we think they might. You know, th there is no way that this Hebrew militia of farmers and herdsmen would have banded together and fought if they thought the outcome was going to be anything other than victory. But as Job and so many others have discovered in their journeys with Yehovah, God usually gives us information on a need-to-know basis. And apparently Israel didn't need to know any more 
often they were taking on the Philistines. The outcome was obviously beyond their wildest nightmare. We'll examine this battle very closely next week.